We are uh, in our book today. We are in First Chronicles and Second Samuel. You can go online, find this, and turn there. Um, and we're in our our series called "What Happened? Tell Me." And we looked at the passage of scripture that that title comes from last week in Second Samuel one. It says, "What was the outcome?" This is after Saul. Remember, he was the first king anointed. The people wanted a king. God said, "I don't want you to have a king. I want to be your king." They said, no, we need a king. And Samuel told them, if you get a king, he gets all the rights as a king to tell you what to do, to make you do what you don't want to do in your children. And they warned and they still said, we want a king. And God was brokenhearted and Samuel was brokenhearted. And they decided to pick Saul because he looked like the perfect king. But Saul turned his back on God. He turned away from the Lord and there was brokenness and pain in the nation. And God anointed David. And we see in the scriptures, David, after Saul and Jonathan and his sons, most of his sons, not all, are killed, David has a messenger who comes to him and he's concerned about Saul. He says, what was the outcome? Tell me, David asked him. The troops fled from battle, he answered. Many of the troops have fallen and are dead, and also Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And we looked at what God says after death should be our response last week. When we face death, what is our response And we saw David's response of compassion and mercy and brokenness. He didn't celebrate that like ding dong the witch is dead, like the king is dead. He mourned over Saul. He mourned over his best friend Jonathan. And he asked God to intervene for the people of God. And he waited. And if you remember, we looked at this timeline. This is a timeline that I would encourage you to memorize, to know as we go through this series. David was anointed probably at age 11. At age 12, David became a musician for Saul. Then Saul starts to, then at age 15, David kills Goliath and Saul gets jealous and tries to kill David because of his success militarily and and everything else. And so as a result of that, David then is chased by Saul. He's almost killed by Saul. Or I'm sorry, David becomes the commander in the army. Then at age 20, he's almost killed by Saul. He's chased. David is threatened and he's now on the run from Saul. And people are defecting and going to David, even though David's not asking them to follow him. He's not like putting billboards up and say, come, I've got the best new church or the best new military you could ever want. Leave Saul and come to me. That's not what David's doing. David's just trying to survive. And people are like, yeah, we think the spirit is, we're going with you. And David fights for King Asius and the Philistine from Gath. He defects over to the Philistines and it probably wasn't a good thing that he did. It was probably sinful when you look at the, how he did it and why. And, and then Saul and his sons are killed and David has to wait. He's anointed king in Hebron, but he has to wait another seven and a half years before he becomes king. And what I want to talk about today in our passages is something I think that we don't talk enough about. And when we do, I don't think we understand it. And that is the warriors and fighting men. You're going to see that over and over again in this section and in other sections in these books. When we think of warriors and fighting men, automatically we get this picture or this vision of like slaying people and screaming and anger and blood and mayhem and I'm going to get them. And that just is is not the heart of God. God typically will warn nations multiple times for sometimes generation after generation before he brings his judgment. He will raise up people to warn them and and to be his examples to them and he gives them multiple opportunities like he gives us multiple opportunities. He just doesn't come in like a warrior and a fighting man and just eliminate people. He is constantly giving mercy and grace and compassion over and over and over. But there's a fight that we're in, and God is raising up an army of fighters that we'll see in just a moment. And just remember, as you read biblical history, as you read these stories, God does not, not every verse in Scripture is a a prescription for you. Many verses are descriptions of what happened, not a prescription for you to go do it. So when you read a passage and it talks about Solomon having 700 wives and 300 concubines, that is not a prescription of a good idea for you to go do because God says later, don't do it. And he said earlier, don't do it. It's a description of what Solomon was doing and it's a prescription to show us how great God's grace and mercy is in the midst of our stupidity. And that's what we're going to see in this passage and in a lot of what we look at this morning. 
as we look through this. In Colossians 1.12 is where we're going to start. This is where men are, women, families are defecting over to David. They're following to David. They're wandering in the wilderness trying to keep themselves from being killed by Saul. David refuses to fight Saul. He refuses to kill God's people. He, he continues to run because he's like, I don't want to kill you. I want you to receive God's mercy. I'm just trying to be patient. Just leave me alone. And Saul won't. He's jealous. He's angry. He, he wants to control. He wants to have power. It says, the following were the men who came to David at Ziklag, where he was still banned from the presence of Saul of Kish. They were among the warriors who helped him in battle it says they were archers who could use either the right or left hand, both sling stones and shoot arrows from a bow. They were Saul's relatives from Benjamin. Wow. This is probably not going to help Saul feel better about David. It's probably going to anger him more when he's watching his own family members defect to David and tell him, you're not walking with God. We can't follow you. We're going to follow David who's trying to walk with God. This isn't a, this, again, this is not a prescription of how we're supposed to do relationships. Remember, David didn't want to ditch Saul. David wanted to preserve Saul. David just last, what we looked at last week, killed the guy who said he killed Saul. Because you don't touch God's anointed. So, so it's not like David is having these people defect because he's like, oh yeah, come on in. Everybody come to me. I've got all the answers. We got better music here because I write it because I'm David and I'm awesome on a liar. Like we've got better stuff here. We're awesome. That is not what David's doing. David really has nothing to offer these men. They're, they're literally living in the wilderness, wandering around in tents. He doesn't have anything to offer other than I'm trying to walk with God and wait on him and I'm trying to get Saul to let us come back. I'm try That's all we're doing. That's all we want to do. That's all David's trying to do. And people are like, That's, we want you. We, you love God. You worship. Saul's all about politics. He's all about all these other things. And so even Saul's relatives are sick of following a politician. Because they wanted a leader. They go on and it says this. This is what it says in Luke chapter 14. And this is Jesus talking. Jesus is not trying to overthrow the temple. He's not trying to overthrow the Romans. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's wandering around. He has no home. He has no place to lay his head, the Bible says. He's wandering around and it says this. Now great crowds were traveling with Jesus. This is after he's been in his ministry a while, about midway through his ministry. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Boy, that's not popular. Not in Judaism. When you trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham and you know every single like, family member all the way back. Like, Jesus himself, now, is Jesus saying you should hate your family members? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that if you've got something that's a bigger priority to me, your marriage, your job, your career, your kids, that's in front of me, it's an idol. And God destroys idols. Don't have it. Follow me first. Be my disciple. Give yourself to me, and then I will put the relationships in your life that you need, which is exactly what God did for David Thousands of years earlier, hundreds of years earlier. It's exactly what he did. And that's what God can do for us. But what we do is we try to gather. Jesus isn't trying to gather anybody. He's not trying to get people to defect. And then he gives this teaching. And, and every time he gets a big crowd, Jesus will give this really hard teaching and a bunch of people go away. That's what you see all the way through scripture, all the way to the cross, which is why he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. To bear a cross meant you were guilty. It meant you were worthy of death. You committed a capital offense against the Roman Empire worthy of death. This would have been so confusing. I'm, I don't, I'm a good person. I don't carry a cross. He goes, for which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Think about what you're doing. Think about your life. Think about the relationships you have. What battles are you fighting? Are you a warrior for God? Are you a fighting man? Are, are you fighting God's battles? Or are you distracted? Because Jesus says, if you're going to be one of mine, 
things are going to shift and the battles that you fight are going to be very different. You used to fight military battles as Jews. You want me to overthrow the Romans and I'm telling you, I'm going to a cross. Jesus says there'll be a day when he comes back to make war. He will be the ultimate warrior and fighting person, (laughs) being. And he will annihilate, but not yet. In Chronicles, it goes back. It says, some Gadites defected to David at his stronghold in the desert. They were fighting men. That's people from the tribe of Gad, by the way, one of Jacob's 12 sons. Trained for battle, expert with shield and sword. Their faces were like the faces of lions, and they were swift as gazelles on the mountains. These are the best of the best that are coming to David. That are saying, we're coming to you because we want to use our gifts and abilities David isn't trying to recruit gifts and abilities. He doesn't have like churchstaffing.com or, or you know, judaismstaffing.com trying to go out and find. These people are coming to him because they're like, you're fighting. You're trying to do, I want to learn from you. Goes on and it says, these Gadites were army commanders. The least of them was a match for a hundred and the greatest of them for a thousand. These are the men who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks and put to flight all those in the valleys east and west. When they first, when the people of God first crossed over from the Jordan, these guys were out front. And then it says, other Benjamites, those are Saul's relatives, and men from Judah also went to David at the stronghold. David went out to meet them and said to them, if you've come in peace To help me, my heart will be united with you. But if you have come to betray me to my enemies, even though my hands have done no wrong, may the God of our ancestors look on it and judge. In other words, David's like, you can come in, but it better be for the right motive. This is something that we have dealt with with as a church since since we planted. We do not want people coming, transfer membership, coming because you, well, I don't like the music over, I don't like this, I don't like, it's a family When you make a decision like this to defect, you understand that there are consequences to relationship. These people knew that by defecting, Saul was going to try to kill them too. It wasn't like, well, that's a better option. They got better food. They got, it was like, no, if if we make this decision, it's over for us and our families. My children and my wife may be slaughtered. Is this the right thing? And we take seriously moving in and out of relationships in our church. In marriage, dating, friendships, church relationships. And the reason we take it seriously is because when you look at people who walked with God in Scripture, David, Jesus, Peter, Paul, they took it seriously. And so David's saying, what's your motive? And then David's like, well, okay, you say peace, so we'll trust you. So it's not like we're telling people you can't come. It's like, okay, you say you're coming for that reason. Okay, come. And then he observes, and he waits, and he watches, and he warns. And that's exactly what we do. And he looks and he says, look, just know that if you aren't coming in peace, I may not figure it out, other people might figure it out, but God is watching. And he's the judge. Then he goes on, he says, then the spirit took control of Abishai, chief of the 30. That means the Holy Spirit was involved in this. And it said, He said, we are yours, David, and we are with you, son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to him who helps you, for God helps you. See, this guy recognizes that I'm not following you to get something. I'm following you because God is with you, and that's the only reason. Man, that's beautiful. And he says, I pray peace to you, David. Do you know how you get peace in this world? War every time. There is no peace on this side of eternity without war and fighting. We'll see why in a moment. It doesn't happen. There's not a nation who has ever had peace that didn't fight for it. See, when you read something like, blessed are the peacemakers, well, they will inherit the earth. We always think of peacemakers like, oh, we all just just lovely and wonderful and we're not going to hurt a fly. That is not peacemaking. If that's true, then Jesus can't come back as a warrior because he would break his word as the ultimate peacemaker. So peacemaking, yes, it's patience. It's being careful. David isn't running around trying to make war. He's just saying, I'm waiting on God to tell me when to fight, when not to fight. I'm waiting on him to tell me. He goes on, he says, David received them and made them leaders of his troops. 
Some Manassites defected to David when he went with the Philistines to fight against Saul. So David went with the Philistines to fight against Saul. But if you remember the story, he didn't, God didn't allow him to do it. <laughs> God stopped him from being able to follow through fighting Israel on behalf of the Philistines. Even in David's sin and stupidity, God protected him from doing that. You ever been there? Where you're in the midst of doing something really stupid, something you shouldn't have done, and God comes through and stops it and puts a wall up? That's what happened in this circumstance, but these Manassites defected to him, and this is what the Manassites did. They said, however, they did not help the Philistines because the Philistine rulers sent David away after a discussion. The Philistine rulers discussed and said, they said, we don't want you fighting with us because we're afraid you're like, betray us and go back to Saul, which I believe David would have done. I believe David would have like got ready to, and he would have been like, I'm so sorry, kill him, and go after the Philistines, because that's how David, David's an emotional guy, and that's how he probably would have reacted. And the Philistines were smart enough to know, we like having David like in our country, because like things are happening for us good, because he's with God and blessing him, but we really don't want him fighting Saul, because I think he'll probably just kill us. And then it goes on to say, they said it will be our heads if he defects to his master Saul. So these Manassites, when they agreed with David, when he went to fight with the Philistines, they're like, ah, we, we can't do that. We're, we're not doing that. Because they knew that he would defect to Saul too. So David didn't even know the right, David thought, oh, I can fight him. And everybody around him is going, no, you can't. We know your heart. We know you. Like, you're not gonna follow through with it, David. There's no way. Ever been there? When you're like, oh, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do that. And people look at you, don't. That's not who you are. That's not what you want to do. I'm going to do it anyway. And you go after it, and then God again stops you. And you're like, wow, I should have listened to all those people. They loved me. They Exactly what happens here. Second Chronicles 12, 20 says, When David went to Ziklag, some of the men of Manasseh defected to him. Adna, Jazabad, Jedidel, Michael, Jozebad, Elihu, and Zilathai, chief of the thousands in Manasseh, they helped David against the raiders, for they are all brave warriors, commanders in the army. At that time, men came day after day to help David until there was a great army like an army of God. David can't keep people from coming to him, and he's not even doing anything effective yet. All they're doing is like raiding a few things and trying to feed themselves. <laughs> there is nothing attractive, really, other than the grace of God and the power of God in this circumstance, except when they look at Saul and they watch what's happening with idol worship and they watch Saul consulting mediums and they're watching what Saul's doing that isn't like Saul doesn't love me enough. Like It's like he is doing wicked. They're looking and saying, I can't participate in that. God, what do you want me to do? And they're struggling with how they walk through that just like David was. And look, God is building his army today. God is day after day reaching people, raising people up, discipling. That's why you're here. He says, I want you to be a warrior and a fighting man. But you know what's hard about being a warrior and a fighting man? You die. Fighting. Most of the time. It, it's hard. It's, it's a battle every day that we walk into. And we have to question, is it worth it? It's laying down your life, laying down your goods, laying everything down because you believe that God is doing it. 2 Samuel 2 says this, at the same time when David is having all these people gather, Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Saul's remaining son, Ashibosheth, and moved him to Mahaman. He made him king over Gilead, Asher, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, over all Israel. Saul's son, Ashibosheth, was 40 years old when he began his reign over Israel. He ruled for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time David was king in Hebron. Remember, the house of Judah anointed David king over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. David is now still opposed. He still has opposing kingdoms. He asked God, what do you want me to do after a certain amount of time? Could have been a year, two years, six months, but it was a certain amount of time. God said, go to Hebron. When he went to Hebron, the people of Judah are like, we know you were anointed. We're, we want to anoint you as God's chosen, his, our king. At the same time, Abner, who's this incredible military general, goes and gets a, a Shibosheth and says, we need to circle the wagons. Can't lose anything. Can't lose anybody. And, and I'm going to fight this. 
Why? Because Abner's kind of a headstrong guy. He's a military guy. He's not going to pray and ask God's wisdom. No, 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 no. You just survive. You fight. You move forward. How about you pause and ask God what you want, what he wants to do? Goes on, it says, after that, oh, and by the way, people have to make a choice. Abner had a choice to make. Do I go with David or do I follow a Sibosheth? And he made the choice to go with the Sibosheth. Second Chronicles 2 says, the numbers of the armed troops who came to David at Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him according to the word were as follows, and there's thousands listed if you read that section. And then he says, all these warriors lined up in battle formation came to Hebron, fully determined to make King David king over Israel. And all the rest of Israel is also of one mind to make David king. They spent three days there eating and drinking with David for their relatives had provided for them. David is not trying to be attractional. He's not trying to do this. David is not seizing the opportunity. He's waiting for God to work, and that's exactly what God does. He goes on to say, in addition, their neighbors from as far away as Issachar, Zebulun, and Naphtali came and brought food um, on donkeys, camels, mules, and oxen, abundant provisions of flour, figs, cakes, raisins, wine, and oil, oxen, sheep. Indeed, there was great joy. There was joy in Israel. There's joy in Israel in the midst of this. In the midst of the mess, in the midst of the confusion, God's people are still looking for his joy. And I'm telling you, that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to be fighting battles in your life, to be fighting things, and to still be able to find joy. It's a hard thing to know you're getting ready to go into a battle. Sickness, problems in relationships, Whatever it is, you're going into a battle and still have joy that you get to be a part of it, that you get to take your family, your loved ones, and lead them into the battle. That is a hard thing, but that's what the Spirit does in us. He goes on and says this in Matthew 16, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside, the warrior, the fighting man Peter, who has a sword, who cuts off the ear of one of the high priest's guards in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus slaps it back on and be like, no, do that. I think that's one of the best stories in Scripture, right? Like Peter's like, Lord! And Jesus is like, stop. Okay, you're fine. Stop it. Like, it's just beautiful, right? Then he goes on, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. But Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's a harsh rebuke. I've been given three years of my life to you, three and a third years of my life to you, and I was a pretty faithful Jew before that, and you're going to call me Satan? Yeah, because that's what you're acting like right now. That's who's controlling you right now. Did I ask you to go to war? I thought I told you I was going to the cross. Then he looks and he says, you are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. And that was the difference between Saul and David. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross, not his sword. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? Let me ask you, what are you giving your life to? What are you fighting for day in and day out? Whatever insignificant or significant fight that is. Is it for eternal things or is it just for earthly things? Do you just want stuff and relationships fixed or do you want everything ordered as God would have it? That's a big question. Because we tend to take our desires to God and not ask him what his desires are. And that, again, was the difference between Saul and David. Saul was always saying, this is what I want, and I'm going to get it, and I'm going to figure out a way to get it. And David was always like, God, do you want me to have that? And then David would chase things and get it, and then he would be like, oh, you don't want me to have that, I'm sorry. And you'd see him confess and write a psalm and lead the people to confession. Goes on and he says this in 2 Samuel 2, Abner, son of Ner, and the soldiers of Ashibosheth, son of Saul, marched out from Mahanan to Gibeon. So Joab, son of Zeriah, Joab is a nephew of David. 
David's sister is Joab's kid. Okay, Joab is, is the child of David's sister, Zariah. It's interesting that she's mentioned and not her husband. But that's how it is. And so it says, he is a nephew. Family relationships can get us in big, big trouble if we don't put them in place right behind God. <laughs> and David doesn't do that, and Joab is a thorn in David's side until the final moment when Joab's killed. And we see what happens. It goes on. It says this. Joab marched out. Son of Zariah, David's soldiers marched out to meet them by the pool of Gibeon. The two groups took positions opposite the sides of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have the young men get up and compete in front of us. Let them get up, Joab, let them get up, Joab replied. So they got up and were counted off for Benjamin and Ashibosheth, son of Saul, and from David's soldiers. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side so they all died together. So this place, which is in Gibeon, is named Field of Blades. Boy, that was pointless. Twelve guys on each side. Interesting, the number twelve. Jesus had twelve disciples, twelve warriors to do battle. They could have just went to war and Abner's like, you know, I really don't want to kill you all. I don't think we should, die. I don't want, that's not my desire is to have a war and kill you. So why don't we just Select some of our best men and let them have it out and see who's standing at the end. And isn't it interesting that God doesn't give Joab and Abner what they want? There just needed to be one guy standing at the end. Okay, you win. Go home. That's the whole David and Goliath, right? David killed Goliath. The Philistines fled. Like, that's how they used to fight back then so they didn't have to kill everybody. It's actually kind of merciful. And so here you have this opportunity and they all stab each other and die at the same time. And they're both standing there like, now what? What do we do? That really didn't work. Our plan of peace didn't really pan out like we thought it would. Like, I thought my warriors were really strong. I thought my warriors were really strong. And remember who's fighting here, folks. The people of God are fighting each other. They're killing each other. Because they won't submit to God. Joab didn't ask David if he should go. Joab didn't ask God if he should go. Joab's just always looking for a fight all the time. Joab's a, I'm a warrior, I'm a fighting man, I'm going to always look for a fight. That's Joab's heart. That's his nephew that he's trying to control and his nephew's crazy. And you see that through the book. Goes on and says this. 2 Samuel 2. The battle that day was extremely fierce. So after the 12, they fought each other. And Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by David's soldiers. And three of Zariah, and the three sons of Zariah were there. Joab, Abishai, and Ashel. Ashel was a fast runner, like one of the wild gazelles. That's fast, by the way. Gazelles run really quick. And he says, he chased Abner and did not turn to the right or the left in his pursuit of him. Abner, Abner glanced back and said, is that you, Ashel? Yes, it is, Ashel replied. Abner said to him, turn to your right or left and seize one of the young soldiers and take whatever you can get from him. But Ashel would not stop chasing Abner. So often, we will decide we're going to fight a battle. We're going to go to war over something God has not asked us to do, and it costs us. And that's what we see here. He wasn't telling Ashel to go kill Abner, but I'm not giving up. We're going to win this thing. I'm going to fit. Like, he's just so prideful. Where did he learn that from? Probably his older brother, Joab. Right? Three brothers. You ever been in a house with brothers? Like, you know, a bunch of you and there's no female, like mom's not home, no, no sisters. That place is crazy. It's a mess, stuff gets broken. Like, you can come home and somebody's punching somebody. I had two neighbor boys and one of them put a pitchfork right in the other one, right under the eye, like fighting one day. They were so mad at each other and he jabbed him with a pitchfork. Like, I had to take a baseball bat over one time and break the two of them up fighting. I'm not kidding you. They had a babysitter that tied them both to a chair and made them look at each other like the whole time. Like literally tied them and said, you guys are going to not try to kill each other anymore. You're not going to fight. You're going to look. You're going to, we're not doing this. And they're still in the chair like trying to bounce into each other, right? Like it's the same thing here. This isn't the fight that God wants, but they're going to fight it. And Abner knows it's not the right fight. He's trying to run, but Abner's not on the right side. So who's right here? Goes on and says this. Once again, Abner warned Ashel, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you to the ground? Oh, that's not good to say to a warrior. 
That's a challenge. Oh, you think you're going to kill me, Abner? Oh, I'm chasing you harder now. We'll show who wins. I'll show you who's boss. How could I ever look at your brother Joab in the face? How are we ever going to restore relationships if we're just killing each other? I don't want this battle. Abner went out to march with his troops, which was normal practice, and Joab went to find him. That's how this started. And then it says, but I shall refuse to turn away. So Abner hit him in the stomach with the end of his spear. The spear went through his body and he fell dead right there. You can be fast and strong, but a spear launched the right way puts you down. When all who came to the place where Ashel had fallen and died, they stopped. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. By sunset, they have gone as far as the hill of Amma, which is opposite of Gaiath, the way, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. The Benjamites rallied to Abner. They formed a single unit and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called out to Joab, look at Abner's heart. Abner is a warrior and a fighting man. He's trying to figure out, what do I do in this mess? Yes, I've wanted to protect Ashibosheth. I don't want him dead. I'm trying to do the right thing here. And Abner's, look, he goes on, he says, he called out to Joab, must the sword devour forever? Do we have to keep killing each other? Can't we just wait? Ashibosheth will die someday and David can have the kingdom. He goes on, he says, don't you realize this will only end in bitterness underline circle that in your bible because if you fight the wrong wars and battles you will have a lot of bitterness if you're fighting because you want that person to change and they've got to change and they better do this and they better do that can i just tell you god's the only one that can change them we're supposed to confront them to talk to them about it but extend grace and mercy and patience as we hold them accountable it doesn't mean we let things slide, but it means that we have to be careful that a root of bitterness doesn't get in us in such a way that now we're going to fight, 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 fight no matter what. And that's what happens when you get into wars and battles and fighting men can easily fall into this. He says, how long before you tell the troops to stop pursuing their brothers? Abner says, this isn't about me and you, Joab. It's not about your brother. There's a bigger war going on in the kingdom among God's people and this has got to stop. How much longer will you stop pursuing one another? Stop stealing from one another. Stop raiding one another. That's why I don't like sheep swapping in the church. Just Stop. Give yourself to a family. Lay down your life. If you find out that family's teaching false things, have a conversation. Go to the pastors. Work through it. If you have to leave, leave well like David did. Not leave and make a mess and kill people or just go, you know, not even talk about it. Goes on and he says, as God lives, Joab replied, if you had not spoken up, the troops would have stopped pursuing their brothers, wouldn't have stopped pursuing till morning. Then Joab blew the ram's horn and all the troops stopped. And they no longer pursued Israel or continued to fight. Abner was willing to step up and say, God, stop. I know your brother's dead. This isn't about us. And when he does, Joab finally says, okay, I stop. But we find out later that Joab didn't stop for the right reasons, most likely. Joab probably stopped because he saw the Benjamites, who were some of the best fighters, and realized that this is going to be a brutal battle. Maybe I'll wait. So Abner and his men marched through. The Arabah all night. They crossed the Jordan, marched all morning, and arrived at Mahanan. When Joab had turned back from pursuing Abner, he gathered all the troops. In addition to Ashel, 19 of David's soldiers were missing, but they had killed 360 of the Benjamites and Abner's men. Afterwards, they carried Ashel to his father's tomb in Bethlehem and buried him. Then Joab, his men, marched all night and reached Hebron. They came back to David at dawn. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David was long and drawn out, with David growing stronger and the house of Saul becoming weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahoam, the Jezreelite. The second was Chilib by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third was Absalom, son of Maka, the daughter of King Talmai in Jeshur. The fourth was Adajana, the son of Haggith. The fifth was Shephath. The son of Abital. The sixth was Ethrium by David's wife, Igla. These were born to David in Hebron, and it's a big problem. How many wives does God say you're supposed to have in Scripture? Anybody? One. Adam and Eve. He didn't create multiple Eves. He didn't say, oh, Adam. Eve didn't really completely. Let's get another rib. Let's get another rib. 
Oh, you can't stand up anymore because you're just mush because you have nothing holding you. No, like he created one woman, Adam and Eve, and that was his intention all along. Male, female, they come together, they're one flesh, not we're one flesh and another one flesh. That's his plan. David decides, I like that plan. I need to get me some more kids, some more honeys, some more whatever. I mean, we know that David struggled with lust. We see that. We'll see that more as we pursue it. And these sons end up fighting with each other later. Duh. You created a mess. David wasn't perfect. God's still with David. He's still using him in the midst of stupidity. Solomon takes David's sin and takes it to the nth degree. David has a handful of wives. Solomon has a country full of wives. And we better be careful because if we don't deal with our sin, if we don't deal with what all of God wants us to deal with, it may look like we're successful. It may look like we've got it all together. But in the end, it still cost us dearly. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner kept acquiring more power in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, daughter of Ai, and Ibosheth questioned Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry about Ishibosheth's accusation. Am I a dog, dog's head, who belongs to Judah? In other words, do you think that I'm trying to overthrow you? I've been faithful to you. I've, I've tried to serve you, and, and now you're like accusing me of things? Who's the great accuser? Satan, right? Satan accuses. He doesn't bring witnesses. He doesn't bring facts. He just makes accusations. Welcome to social media. Welcome to our news media today. You don't need witnesses, you don't need facts, you don't need proof. All you got to do is be the first one to, to make the statement, and then you have to defend yourself. It's no longer innocent until proven guilty. It's your guilty till you can prove your innocence. And that's exactly what Ashibosheth is doing. Why? Because Ashibosheth is insecure. Ashibosheth, like his father Saul, he doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust people. He's been burned. His family's dead. Oh, I got to protect everything. Instead of just saying, well, like David, when he says, you say you want peace, okay, come in and God will judge. And he sees Abner getting power and Achibosheth says, I'm not letting that power go. And then he goes on, he says, all this time I've been loyal to the house of your father Saul, to his brothers and to his friends and haven't handed you over to David. I have had numerous opportunities to ditch you and put you in David's hands. And I haven't. I'm waiting on God, just like David's waiting on God. And today, sexual accusations are just as wicked as they were then. It causes just as much conflict and war as it did then. And we have to be very careful how we handle relationships, as God says. And then it says, but now you accuse me of wrongdoing with this woman. We had a president who said that once. I don't know if, if Abner did it or not. It looks like he didn't by the other facets of his character. God doesn't tell us. But Abner says, may God punish Abner and do so severely if I don't do for David what the Lord swore to him. Abner's like, I'm done. I've been following you, waiting patiently, protecting you. It's obvious you don't want what God wants. You just want what you want. You're just gonna try to be in control like your dad. You're gonna try to manipulate people. I'm done. I'm going to David. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish the throne of David over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba, Ashibosheth could not answer Abner because he was afraid of him. Ashibosheth isn't a warrior. He's not a fighting man. He knows what he's doing isn't right. So instead he just backs down and is like, okay. Now, Abner doesn't say we're gonna come kill you, Ashibosheth. He's just like, it's time for you to be done. It needs to be someone else who steps up. Abner sent messengers as his representatives to say to David, whose land is it? I love this. He goes to David and he says, whose land is it? Of course, David's answer would be what? It's God's land. I didn't ask to be king. I was out doing sheep at age 11. I'm out tending sheep, killing lions, bears, protecting the sheep. All my brothers are at home. They get to be the warriors with Saul's army and, and everything else. And I'm just tending sheep. And then someone comes and gets me. I got to drive all my sheep home or I have to put them in the pen. I got to protect. Then I got to come home. And then out of nowhere, Sam is like, yep, he's the one. He anoints me. And then he leaves. And I got to go back to sheeping, like shepherding. That's my job. I didn't ask for that. I didn't want that. But that's the way it went down. 
And so Abner says, whose land is it? Well, of course it's God's land. I'm not, God's the true king. I'm just the temporary king. He goes on, he says, make your covenant with me and you can be certain I am on your side to hand over all, or hand all Israel over to you. David replied, good, I will make a covenant with you. However, there's one thing I require of you. Do not appear before me unless you bring Saul's daughter, Michael, or Michelle, here when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to say to Ashibosheth, son of Saul, give me back my wife, Michelle. I was engaged to her for the price of 100 Philistine foreskins. If you remember, Saul gave David his daughter for his battle. And then when David, Saul despised David, he took his daughter away so they couldn't consummate the marriage. They were engaged but not truly married yet. And Saul used her as a tool of manipulation. She was betrothed to one and Saul made a mess of all of it. Now David is reminding them, that's fine. If you want to make a covenant with me, let's see if you really believe in God's covenants and vows. I made a covenant for a woman in the house of Ashibosheth, in the house of Saul, and I want to uphold that vow and that covenant. Will you bring her to me? Here's the problem. So Ashibosheth sent someone to take her away from her husband. Palatel, son of Lachish, her husband followed her weeping all the way to Bahurim. Abner said to him, go back. So he went back. We have to be very careful about our vows and our covenants. I don't know if David did the right thing. I don't know if this was what God wanted. But I do know this, that God says that you're to be the husband of one wife. We read that earlier. This woman was betrothed and she was used. And now she's caught again. And David says, will you do the right thing that was supposed to be the right thing originally? And this man, maybe he didn't even know she was betrothed before. He may not have known. Maybe he knew and just said, ah, it'll be fine. But when her first husband came back and wanted her, he had to give her up. And our first husband will come back someday. And we have to give everything up to follow him. And so this guy has to decide, do I submit to the king? Do I submit to what I want? And he goes back. Goes on and says this. After Abner conferred with the elders of Israel in the past, you wanted David to be king over you. Now take action. Because the Lord has spoken concerning David. Remember, Abner's not saying, I'm making this happen. God is. Then he says, through my servant David, I will save my people, Israel, from the power of the Philistines and the power of all Israel's enemies. Abner also informed the Benjamites and went to Hebron to inform David about all that was agreed on by Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. When Abner and the 20 men came to, or Abner and the men came to David at Hebron, David held a banquet for him and his men. This is the enemy. And yet David is like, I'm going to open up my banquet table. Remember when David wrote the psalm that said, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies? David's opening up and saying, okay, I'll let you come in. This could be a ruse. This could be a Trojan horse. You might come in to kill me, but I'm going I'm to be the person of peace. It goes on, it says, Abner said to David, let me now go and I will gather all Israel to my Lord they will make a covenant with you and you will rule over all you desire. So David dismissed Abner and he went in peace. David is a mighty warrior. He is a fighting man. And over and over again, we see that the heart of David is I don't want to kill. I don't want death. If I have to, I have to. But I want peace. We got so many Christians running around right now trying to start fights everywhere. Where's preparing a table for your enemies? That doesn't mean you won't fight later, but at least you've got an opportunity to tell them about your God and his covenants, to lead them possibly to repentance. Just then, David's soldiers and Joab returned from a raid and brought a large amount of plundered goods with them. Abner was not with David in Hebron because David had dismissed him. And he had gone in peace. When Joab and all his army arrived, Joab was informed. Abner, son of Ner, came to see the king. The king dismissed him, and he went in peace. 
This was a great moment for Joab, a great moment to celebrate the reunification, the coming together of the people that that, that my king, David, is, is bringing back peace among people. He's trying to make peace between difficult relationships, relationships that have really hurt each other. Someone killed someone else's brother, relationships that have just caused turmoil. Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? This is like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son comes home, he's squandered everything, he's done all this sin, and the father's excited. David's thinking, we're finally going to have peace. It's finally going to happen. And Joab's like the older brother. No, not that brother of mine. Look here, Abner came to you. Why did you dismiss him? Now he's getting away. You know that Abner, son of Ner, came to deceive you and to find out about your activities and everything you're doing. Then Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the well of Syrah, but David was unaware of it. In other words, Joab said, hey, David wants to talk again. Come on back. When Abner returned, he returned. Abner's not thinking he's being trapped. Oh, no, no, no. Joab's the one that's constantly playing the game, trying to trap, trying to manipulate. When Abner returned, Joab pulled him aside to the middle of the gateway. Abner thinks Joab's going to obey David. I obeyed David. We're we're all going to rally around David. We're going to rally around our king. This is great. As if to speak to him privately, and there Joab stabbed him in the stomach. You killed my brother stabbing him in the stomach? I'm going to kill you stabbing you in the stomach. No grace, no mercy, just justice. And we can be the same way if we're not careful. He goes on and it says, so Abner died in revenge for the death of Ashel, Job's brother. David heard about it later and said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before God or before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May it hang over Joab's head and his father's whole house. And may the house of Joab never be without someone who has a discharge or a skin disease or a man who can only work a spindle. In other words, he's not a fighting man or someone who falls by the sword or starves. Joab and his brother Abishai killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashel to death in the battle of Gibeon. This is harsh rebuke. David's like, I am not gonna kill him. I'm not gonna keep killing. I'm gonna stop. I'm not gonna kill Joab. Maybe he should have. Maybe he should have taken his rank away. I don't know. We'll see why in a minute, why he struggled. But anyway, here he is. Here he's struggling And David's like, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'll let you live, but let's just be honest about what's getting ready to come for you, Joab, and your house. All this stuff is coming, and it comes for Joab and his house. And why would God want to do all these things? You want to know why? It's exactly what Greg Botello told me when I prayed with him after about three weeks of COVID. Greg looked at me, and he said, we were praying, and I think it was Thursday morning. We are praying at 7 a.m., and he said, you know, Matt, He said, it's amazing to me that most of the time, it seems like in your past, when God really wants to get your attention and do something for you, he puts you flat on your back, makes you miserable and sick. Praise the Lord. And I'm like, I remember just thinking to myself, I don't want to pray with you now. That is not encouraging. And then I looked at him and I said, but you're right. Like, this is my story. It's no different. David is not saying, I want all this bad to happen to Joab. He's saying, there's no other way that Joab's sons, grandsons, and everybody's going to learn until they get so miserable that they finally go, oh, God, help me. Because that's how we are. So David is not just pronouncing a curse on Joab. He's pronouncing grace and mercy so that Joab's future family might repent because we don't learn any other way. He goes on, he says this. You have heard, or Jesus says this, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And oftentimes, the greatest enemies are those in our own Households. Just like this whole story is God's household at war with one another. 
It doesn't mean we give the enemy's permission to speak in our lives. It doesn't mean we follow the enemy. It doesn't mean we don't have to fight the enemy sometimes. He's just saying, what's your heart? Is your heart always to be fighting or is your heart to go before God and ask what he wants, to try to make peace, to try, not compromise, because most peace is made through compromise. We're told that peace is made through death. You want to know why you have peace with God? Because Jesus died for you. Because he brought the peace that could not happen unless he paid the price. And that's what he asks us to do. That's what Jesus is saying here. 2 Samuel 3, it says, Then David ordered Joab and all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, sackcloth, and mourn over Abner. In other words, if you don't do this, justice is coming on you, Joab, but it's time for you to repent. And King David walked behind the funeral procession. When they buried Abner in Hebron, the king wept out loud at Abner's tomb. Picture that. This is his enemy. This is his commanding general enemy. And David is at his tomb screaming and weeping out loud. Now, could he have been faking it? Look what it says. All the people wept, and the king sang a lament for Abner. He wrote a song and brought a guitar to cry while he was singing. That's what a lament is. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet not placed in bronze or shackles. You fell like one who falls victim to criminals, and all the people wept over Abner even more. Then they came to urge David to eat bread while it was still day, but David took an oath. My God punished me and do so severely if I taste bread or anything else before sunset. Can I just tell you one of the most encouraging things I heard this week? When I texted the staff team to say that I was on my way to the emergency room, Luke took the day off to fast and pray for me. He didn't tell me that until like a few days ago, Friday. My heart broke because I thought, when was the last time I did something like that? And God, thank you that you are raising up young people with a heart like David, that are fighting like David fought. Warriors. That's not me. That's God. That's exactly what David did. Then he says, all the people took note of this, and it pleased them. In fact, everything the king did pleased them. On that day, all the troops in Israel were convinced that the king had no part in the killing of Abner. Proverbs says this, don't gloat when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart rejoice when he stumbles or the Lord will see, be displeased and turn his wrath away from him. Ezekiel 18 says this in two different places in Ezekiel. This is the 18, chapter 18, 22. It says, do not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Or do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? So often, Christians can be so happy that we see people suffer and that they fall, and ha, 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 that should not be our heart. It's not wrong that they fall. It's not wrong to say, well, they fell because of this, and to put facts together and truths together. We should do that as a warning, but it should also break our hearts when people fall, especially the people of God. He goes on and says this, Then the king said to his soldiers, You must know that a great leader has fallen in Israel today. As for me, even though I am the anointed king, I have little power today. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too fierce for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. He says that to the whole nation. And then Joab and his brother still have to figure out how to serve David in the midst of it. That's very merciful. That's very like... Okay, this guy is under church discipline. This is going on. We just want you all to know. We still love him. We hope he changes. We're not going to tell him to leave. Okay, let's have service. Let's move on for the next day. That's what David does. Maybe that was the wrong decision. I don't know. But God, David turned this man and his family over to God, not took matters into his own hands. And remember, David's not afraid to take matters into his own hands. He ran out to the battlefield to be the only one to fight Goliath. When Saul's son of Shibosheth heard that Abner had died in Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Saul's son had two men who were leaders of the raiding parties, one named Bana, the other Rechab, sons of Rimmon and the Barathite and the Benjamites. Barath, uh, Barath is also considered part of Benjamin, and the, the Barathites fled to Gittim and still live there as foreigners to this very day. In other words, they fled instead of running to repentance and surrender. They thought it best to run away. 
Isn't that what we do so often? Well, God couldn't have grace on me. David couldn't have grace on me. How many times does David have to be forgiving, have grace, and be merciful before you finally say, I'm running to that? Instead, we either fight it or we run away from it. Ephesians says this as we wrap up. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Do you have armor at home? Do you have a night suit that you put on when you go to work each day? Because... No, because that's not the armor we use. That's not the armor given to us by the Holy Spirit. Here's the armor. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist. You don't want your pants to fall down. You can't run. Hard to fight with your pants at your ankles. You need a belt. It holds everything together. That's also what you attach the sword to. Important to have. He goes on. He says, righteousness like armor on your chest It protects the the bodily organs. It protects the innards, what's deep down inside. Righteousness protects that, and our righteousness is given to us by God. Truth is given to us. Righteousness is given to us. And your feet sandaled with the readiness of the gospel of peace. You're ready to go when God says go. You're ready to take off. And all of this, in every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, your mind, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. All of these things come from the word of God, truth, righteousness, peace. It all comes from a relationship with Jesus as revealed through his word. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness, to fight, to go to war the mystery of the gospel. Paul is like, our battle is to warn and go to fight. We're not, we're not trying to kill our enemies. We're trying to warn them before Jesus comes back to kill them. Our king is coming. And our king's not ready to kill them yet. And so we're warning them over and over, and it's coming. And sometimes, God still calls people, nations, to have to destroy other nations. So as we wrap up, we look at the wars and the fights. I end with this, James 4. 4.1 says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Is it nations? Is it the spiritual forces we just read about in Ephesians? Is that? No, he says, don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot attain. You fight and war wrongly. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. Can I just ask you, have you surrendered to the king? Have you surrendered to him and said, I surrender, I'm yours? Are there battles that you're fighting right now that God doesn't want you to be fighting? That you need to stop making war and figure out a way to bring peace? To pray and maybe have to wait a long time and continue to pray and ask him to change your heart so you can go for the right motives? I don't know, but can I just tell you? God does. He sees. He wants you to have all of those tools, shield, belt. He wants to walk with you and he wants you to fight his battles and he wants to use you for his glory, whatever we go through. Would you just surrender to him like you saw the people surrender to David? Would you give yourself to him? Would you give yourself to the the body of Christ? Because that's what God calls us to do, to make a covenant with him and a covenant with his people to say, I'll fight. I'll be your warrior the way you want me to fight. And I'll fight what's inside here, like James says, so that you can change me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to know you. Lord, I pray that you change our heart. Lord, help us to be your warriors and your fighting men. Help us to to follow you, to surrender to you, to, to see you as our king and to have a heart like David to continue to come back to you, to be willing to rebuke, correct, to be willing to check our own hearts and to call others into a relationship with you, to be willing to try to make peace, not constantly trying to 
manipulate, as James says, the circumstances so we get what we want. And Father, would you help us to live simple lives like David lived, of just simply following you and having food the next day and taking care of the people and like just help us to fight the small battles, trusting you that someday you'll come back to be anointed the ultimate king and bring your people together to once and for all fight the ultimate battle that will bring the promised land that you're making in heaven right now. You will bring it to earth and we will live with you forever. So Father, give us your gospel. And I pray that if anyone here doesn't know you, I pray they would surrender to you as king. To believe that you died for them, that you were resurrected to give them new life and they can follow you. We thank you, we praise you, that you are with us in the midst of the fight. You're with us in the midst of our sin like you were with David, calling us to repent. And when we weep, you are with us when we weep and you bring your people around us to weep together. You also bring your people around us to have joy together when we're walking with you as the king. We thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen.